Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. It was sounds that I never heard before, you know, and that was like super, super new to me. And it just kind of like blew my mind, you know, like when I heard Skinny Puppy for the first time and just hearing the, I'm like, what the fuck is even happening? You know what I mean? Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. Joining us this week is Samford Parker, a Chicago-based musician, studio engineer, and producer. You've heard his work in these capacities on albums from I Hate God, Yob, Woven Hand, Voivod, Hyde, Dark Throne, Youth Code, Harm's Way, Facts, and Unearthly Trance, just to name a few. As we get to know Samford, hear about his engineering and production processes, and dive into select few works, his approach and passion for music becomes evident. In the episode notes, you'll find a playlist containing music he's created and produced, including Buried at Sea, Corrections House, Mirrors for Psychic Warfare, and his solo album. Let's dive and get heavy. Sanford Parker, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, let's let's get started and get to know you a little bit. Um, wh- how did you find music, and what were some of your like early impressions you had with with music? Who was important, and what was important? Well. Uh, it's, I mean, it's from day one, as far as I can remember, my parents were like really into music. Like we always had music in the house. We didn't really, we weren't a TV family, but the radio was like on all the time. As soon as we wake up till the time we go to bed. And it's still like that. When I go visit my mom, she'll wake up, pop the radio on and it just stays on the entire time, you know? And, and uh, my dad was a musician. So it was just like it, it immediately in my blood, you know, like they would take me to, to see bands when I was a kid. Um, it was just, it kind of started from there. And uh, I mean, even like today, my mom is in her mid seventies and she goes see bands like three or four nights a week. You know, um, when I go down there, she just like drags me around to all these different venues to check out these bands and shit. So uh, yeah, man, it was just like, it just, I just fell into it. You know what I mean? Like I just, uh, was just brought up in it, you know, it was just always around. What was on the radio and what were you hearing that like made a pretty strong impression on you? Well, they were, you know, really into country music and, you know, this was back in the seventies. So country music was still really good. And, uh, so I just had like this, I've had a love for it. You know what I mean? I still do. Um, and my stepdad, he kind of started getting me into rock. Um, I remember he brought me an ACDC cassette you know, like I was young, like, I don't know, four or five or something. And I just, they blew my mind. Like I, I got obsessed with it and I would uh, walk around with like a cassette case, you know, like um, just full of like ACDC cassettes and a Walkman. Like I took it everywhere. Everywhere <laughs> I went, I had that case of tapes and a, and a Walkman. And I was just obsessed with them. And, uh, you know, then it just kind of went from there. Like, you know, when I was at an age where I could start buying my own records. I would go to a record store and kind of flip through and find stuff that looked cool. You know, I remember uh, probably my first introduction to like underground metal was I was flipping through and I came across Venom, Welcome to Hell. 
And I didn't know what a pentagram was at the time. You know, I just remember seeing that <laughs> that image and just being like, holy shit, this looks fucking cool. So I took it home and played it. And, you know, I didn't even know what I was hearing. It was just like, it, I, just, it, I just instantly gravitated toward it. It just blew me away, you know? And so that kind of like started getting me into punk and hardcore and then thrash. And it just kind of went from there. But yeah, I would say that. That was like my earliest memory of like buying my own record, you know, or like at least go picking it out and uh, and just seeing that that cover and just being like, oh shit, this is this looks fucking sick. Mm-hmm. And when did you start kind of identifying these different sounds that these records would have? Because Venom has a different, very different style of mixing yeah. and the way it's recorded versus you know the country and ACDC. I mean, I, I guess I didn't really, I wasn't really focusing on like the sound from like a production point, you know, it was just this, just the sound itself, just, uh, I don't know, it just did something that just, I just loved, you know, I, you know, I went from, cause my, you know, my parents didn't re- like, they didn't listen to Black Sabbath or Zeppelin, you know, um, so I never really had an introduction to like harder rock from them. They were, you know, pretty much just in the country music. And uh, so I, I went from like, you know, Hank Williams and Waylon Jennings to Venom, you know, so that was like, that, you know, and, and then the ACDC in between. Um, but yeah, that was like, I don't, yeah, I couldn't really pinpoint like the sound, you know, like what it was about the sound. There was just something about it. It just, it just like, I don't know, it just did something for me. Definitely. Yeah. So when did you identify that you wanted to record music as a profession? I mean, I started, uh, yeah, like in high school, I, I started getting more into like electronic music. So I had a MIDI rig in my bedroom at home, you know, and, and I would play around with that and I had a four track. So I was like the guy, you know, that um, I was like the guy in town with a four track. So I would go to like my friends rehearsals and record them for like demos and shit, you know, and, and I would write my own stuff at home and I would had like a sampler and, you know, a pretty basic computer MIDI set up and I would program the drums and dump those to one track on the four track and then put down a bass synth and then maybe a guitar and a vocal or something. So I started like experimenting with that, you know, um, I would, I guess like high school, like early high school, um, I started getting into that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, what was it about this process of taking these things that were in a space and then putting them onto a cassette that, really caught you to me it was like the sound design is what really drew me in you know like taking a sample of like some random sound and actually processing it and making it into something musical you know what I mean and or being able to use it use it in in some sort of like music capacity you know whether it was like a drum sample or like a dialogue sample that slowed down and reversed and ran through some effects you know that that just always interested me, you know, and, that, and I think that's why um, I started getting into electronic music around that time because it was like it was sounds that I never heard before, you know, and that was like super, super new to me, and it just kind of like blew my mind, you know, like when I heard Skinny Puppy for the first time and just hearing the, I'm like, what the fuck is even happening, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so I, I would like kind of dissect those albums the best I could and, and, you know, try to figure out what it was they were doing to make those sounds, you know, and I didn't really know a lot about synthesis at the time, really none. And uh, I didn't really have the cash to 
you know, buy a bunch of analog synthesizers and shit. So I thought the best bet is just to buy a sampler and then I could just sample. And um, there was a music store in town that uh, the guy that was in charge of the keyboard department, I kind of like, you know, became friends with him in a way. I mean, you know, he was much older than me, but I, I would come in and bug him and ask him questions all the time. And he would like kind of let me go through and just sample all the synths they had, you know, so I would do that. And so I had like a, a catalog of, of different sounds and, you know, shit that I just made, you know, like the mm -hmm. best way I, I knew how, you know yeah. what I mean? So, but it, it taught me a lot about sampling and sound design and, and stuff like that. So aside from synthesizers, were there any other instruments that you gravitated toward as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I played bass in bands, I, I played guitar. Um, I started out with drums and I just sucked really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, my timing was shit. So uh, I didn't stick with that. I wish I had, but I didn't. And um, um, you know, my, I always had, my, my stepdad always had a guitar laying around and uh, so I would started picking that up and I would kind of fuck around with that. And to me, I was just able to pick that up quicker and easier than drums. So I just kind of started gravitating toward that. And, um, and then I got into bass. I just love like the low end of the bass. You know what I mean? I love that, just that sound. So I started getting more into that. And um, so I just kind of, you know, jumped around, you know, I'd play bass and in a band, I sang in a band, but I mean, it was like me screaming through a distortion pedal, you know what I mean? <laughs> I wasn't really singing, but uh, so yeah, you know, I just kind of jumped around doing that, but I always kind of did like the electronic stuff here and there. I'd get more into it and then, you know, I would start getting more into like punk and stuff and then I'd kind of go back to the electronic shit. So it was just something that I've always had interest in. So I somehow has pretty much worked its way in every band or everything that I've done musically, you know, even if it's like a, a guitar-driven band, I've always found a way to work in some electronic stuff, too. I was going to ask how that crossover works, because yeah. you definitely notice it a lot in yeah. uh, the albums that you've worked with. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that's always interested me, you know, as, as, as soon as I started making music. So, um, I, it, and it's not even, like, intentional at this point. It's just, like, <laughs> I hear a sound, and I'm like, oh, man, this is, you know, the sound needs to be in the song or whatever. So, and um, I just figure out a way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and how did you end up in Chicago? Because you're, you're from Florida, right? Yeah, so I was going to school in Florida for audio production, and uh, I just wanted to get out of the South. You know, I'd lived in the South all my life up to that point, and this was 90, 98. Um, I think I finished school in 97, then I stuck around and did some interning and, and, uh, and stuff um, the first half of 98. So... Anyway, I wanted to get out of Florida. My original goal was to move to the Bay. You know, I wanted like, you know, the whole like power violence scene that was coming out of the, the Bay around that time in the, in the 90s was just fucking blowing my mind, you know? So uh, I was like, that's where I want to go. But I mean, even in the 90s, it was fucking crazy expensive. I had no money. So uh, this guy in my class, he was from Chicago and you know, he was like, dude, Chicago is not much more than Florida. Um, He's like, you should go there, you know? And I'm like, yeah, touch and go, fucking wax tracks, duh. You know, I mean, that's, that's a fucking easy decision. So, uh, yeah, I literally threw everything in a, in a U-Haul and moved up here. Never been to Chicago in my life. I found, I called this uh, apartment um, company, you know, this is like before, you could just go on the internet and Google a place to live. So I called this company and, and uh, 
And I was working on a film at the time and the, the director was from Chicago. And looking back on it now, you know, it, it is kind of funny, but he would show up every day with a Cubs jersey and a Cubs hat. <laughs> and so I was like, when I decided to move here, I was like, dude, you know, where should I live? And he's like, oh man, you gotta live in Wrigleyville. That's the fucking shit. <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. So I call this company and I'm like, you know, this is what I can afford and I want to live in Wrigleyville. And the dude just started laughing. He just straight up started laughing. He's like, yeah, right. Okay, whatever. He's like, I'll see what I can do. And uh, he called me back like the next day and he's like, believe it or not, I found something you can afford in Wrigleyville. I'm like, I'll, I'll fucking take it, you know? So I sent a check for the deposit and uh, signed the lease and then threw my shit in the truck and drove up here. Mm-hmm. And uh, where, uh, studio-wise, did you kind of find your footing once you were up here? So that was another thing that was kind of uh, just coincidental that worked out was I was kind of interning at the school, like working on some films and stuff, and one of the instructors got a call from a guy named Al Arsini, and he owned, uh, he was one of the original owners of Chicago Tracks, which is where Ministry did all the stuff in the 80s and 90s. And he um, sold his share and opened up his own studio called Studio Chicago. And he just happened to call uh, the instructor. And around that same time, it was asking her if, if she knew anyone that was heading his way because he needed uh, a new assistant for the, the studio. And she's like, yeah, I got this guy, you know. And he's like, cool, call me. So I called him and, you know, he just kind of did like a little interview thing over the phone. And he's like, yeah, man, if, if you want it, you know, it's yours. And I'm like, kick ass. So, I mean, I, I was moving up here and you know, I got this, the apartment thing worked out, it, even though that ended up being a total shit show, but, and I had this, the studio worked out. So that, you know, like I kind of had everything kind of in place when I got here. Um, so that was, that was rad. You know, that was cool. Yeah. And what was happening in studio Chicago at the time? Like when you got in there, what kind of music was, uh, it, was, uh, was being recorded there and what were some of your impressions? It was a lot of, uh, a lot of hip hop. Um, that was like the primary uh, stuff that was going on, which is cool. Um, there was a few like rock things. There was uh, this guy Fluffy. Uh, he used to he did Land of Rape and Honey and the Minds of Terrible Thing to Taste, the Ministry albums, and so he would bring stuff in there. It was kind of cool because there was a lot of guys that worked out of there. They would kind of go back and forth between Studio Chicago and, and Chicago Tracks. So I, you know, I met a lot of the guys that worked on a lot of the records that was the reason I was there, you know what I mean? So that was cool and I got to learn a lot from them, you know, like uh, Fluffy showed me how they used to distort Al's vocals on, on the ministry records, you know, and I, I use that trick today, like, you know, 20 years later, I'm still doing it. So that was cool and I learned a lot, you know, during that process and um, uh, yeah, it was cool. It was, uh, it was a cool like learning, you know, a, a nice introduction to the, like the Chicago scene at mm-hmm. least. And what were some of your other impressions of what was happening, like musically at the time? Were you surprised at what you found? Did you find did you find yourself nestling into like a heavy music community? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like uh, it was interesting because, like, you know, I'd, obviously I was familiar with like Tortoise and Shellac, and I was, you know, I already knew like a lot of the Chicago kind of uh, music scene that was happening at the time, but it was the first show that I went to when I moved here. So I moved here at the beginning of October of 98 and, uh, or like the middle of 98 or October. And on Halloween night, Shellac played a show at uh, Lounge Axe and uh, with David Yao singing and they did a Sex Pistols set. 
and they came out dressed like the Sex Pistols, and <laughs> and so that was the first show that I saw. But it, while standing in line waiting to get in, I see this dude coming down, headbutting everybody in line. I'm like, holy shit, that's fucking Wesley Willis. So he, you know, he came down and like. And How Chicago this Yeah, dude, yeah. right. I'm standing in line for this show, and then here comes Wesley Willis headbutting me, and I'm like, this is fucking insane. Like, like this is amazing, you know? So that, that was cool, man. That was a great way to, like, really set the pace for, you know, what was going to happen. But, I mean, there really wasn't... I felt like, uh, you know, there was a lot of people my age moving to the city at that same time, and we all kind of had the same goals in mind. So... I felt like uh, when I first moved here, it, there was you know that's still that Chicago math rock thing going on. There wasn't really much of a heavy scene necessarily, and uh, but I feel like in the in the next few years that really started to blossom and grow. You know, as like people that you know were all flocking to Chicago from other areas, and they all had the same interest, and you know they all love the Melvins, they all love I Hate God, and they started forming bands and then that's that's kind of when like things started to grow and like and there then the the scene I felt like really started to take off. Yeah, who were some of those people uh that you're referencing? Well, I mean like Indian, uh Lair the Minotaur, Pelican, um and these were all guys that, you know, we would uh back then before the, you know there was, a, there was a bar called the Flatiron before the Flatiron is called the Note and they would do shows and that was like pretty much the only venue in town that would book bands like Weed Eater and I Hate God and Yob and stuff like that. So it, that kind of built up a community. You know, there was Fireside too, which is cool, but that was a little more on like the hardcore punk side, you know. Um, but that, that was a huge, that had a huge impact on, on, my, on me and, and like seeing live bands and, and, and meeting people, you know. So it was kind of like between those two venues. Like even Empty Bottle at the time didn't really do a lot of heavy music. I think they were just kind of like scared from it, you know what I mean, or just kind of turned off by it. Um, and they, you know, they had plenty of the, the kind of indie rock uh, scene going on. So it was really like you had the node and you had the fireside and you just kind of flop, flip flop back and forth, you know? So I would go to the fireside, like if I had a day off or something, I'd just go to fireside. I didn't know who the fuck was playing because you, chances are you're gonna see a band you like, you know? Cause they would have sometimes three shows a day. You know, like on a Saturday, they would start bands at noon and they would go all the way at two in the morning. And it was like three tours that just happened to hit the city at the same time and they just throw them all on the same bill. And it was awesome. Cause you could see like an emo band, a death metal band, a grindcore band, or like electronic band all on the same day. You know what I mean? And uh, it was rad. Like people would just hang out and if there was a band you didn't like, you just go to the bar and do a shot. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, Pelican and Indian. These are bands that you've ended up building sort of long-term relationships with and uh, yeah. recording and or uh, producing as well. So how did it uh, how did it come from meeting these folks and then ingratiating yourself into the scene to actually recording them? Well, uh, so after Studio Chicago, um, I ended up meeting these guys that ran a, uh, a goth like um, industrial label called Serif Records. And they had a spot in Uptown. And it was kind of cool, like the location used to be a furrier, so there was this fucking huge safe, like in the middle of the space, like it was huge. And uh, I mean, it was like, you know, three foot thick concrete walls with a giant safe door. 
And that was in, uh, was that in, that wasn't far from Wrigleyville, was it? I feel like I've been to a later iteration of that space. Maybe it it turned into a studio called Ivy Lab. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So when we moved in, it was just a big empty spot and we built a studio inside that vault. So they ran the record label and they did like production stuff like CD um, duplication and graphic design. It was kind of like, you know, one-stop shop. Um, that they they ran out of that as well, plus the label, and then we had the studio and the and the the vault. So I met up with them, and they needed somebody to run the studio and and operate that. So um, I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'll do it. You know, so that was that was when I really started getting in and you know cutting records and um, you know, and I would meet like the dudes in Pelican, and they would need to do a demo. Like the first EP was a demo, you know, like. And I, we recorded it in a day. I think they came in, set up, recorded it. I think we came back the next day and mixed it or something. Um, so that was, and there was a band called Bible the Devil. You know, there's a few bands from that, that time that I was starting to meet at The Note and Fireside and becoming friends with them, playing shows with them. So now I had the studio, you know, that I could, and the guys that ran the label were really cool about me, you know, just kind of, doing my own thing, you know, as long as I took care of, of their artist and, and all their stuff. And so uh, that gave me the opportunity to, uh, you know, to start making records with these bands that I've become friends with. Mm-hmm. And so how much were you bouncing around studios till you found this uh, location with this record label? I mean, it was pretty much it right out of, um, you know, I was assisting a studio in Chicago and I, you know, they had think he was paying me like a hundred bucks a week. So I, there was nothing I could live off of. And so I was doing kind of odd jobs here and there and, um, to make some money. And then, and then I met these guys that run the label and they were like, we'll just pay you like a set rate every month, you know? And it, I mean, I think it was 1500 bucks that, you know, wasn't shit, but it was enough to where I could live off of it. And mm-hmm. so I just went, basically went from, you know, assisting at Studio Chicago to uh, actually running a studio. You know, it was a small setup, you know, it was like a little, like an early Pro Tools rig. We had like a Mackie board, you know, it, uh, just a small rack of outboard gear. It was like the most basic, basic setup you could really get away with, but it, it totally worked, you know, it, it worked for what we needed. And um, I made a lot of fucking, a lot of records off of it, so. Mm-hmm. And so can you guide us from working out of this studio uh, to the opening of Volume Studio and that whole process? So the, uh, not to get into details, but the record label started kind of imploding on itself and uh, they were kind of screwing over a lot of clients on the production side of things, you know, like they were uh, not getting their albums back in time and it was just it just became like a huge fucking mess and uh so i and my paychecks for my one fifteen hundred dollar check a month started bouncing so i'm like i gotta get the fuck out of here and i'd become friends with this guy jason i used to um he would always be at the i think he worked at the coffee shop that i used to go to by my house like every day and we started talking and he was in a recording and he had like a, a a studio in his basement but he was like, you know, more analog. He had a tape and a console and shit. So he wanted to open up a spot. So we decided to, uh, and then I had another friend, Stan. He was, he was R. Kelly's engineer at the time. So he was working at uh, Chicago Tracks doing stuff with R. Kelly. And uh, obviously he wasn't super stoked on that situation. So he wanted to get out. So the three of us decided, um, you know, well, fuck it. Let's 
let's go to, in together and open up a studio. So we found a spot um, in, I guess, Wicker Park, Ukrainian Village, like whatever that is. And uh, we found the building and it was actually already studio. This guy um, had a studio in there for a while and he was looking to get out. I think he was going on tour with David Bowie, like doing some uh, production video or something, whatever. Anyway, he was looking to get out. So we, he already had, he had a, a analog board, a Neotech uh, board set up. Um, he had a Pro Tools rig, uh, some microphones, and then, you know, I had some stuff, Stan had some stuff, Jay said. So between the three of us and then the stuff that we bought from, that was already there, we, you know, we basically had a studio ready to go. We bought a tape machine. Um, there was a studio called, uh, I can't remember what they're called, but they bought uh, a studio called Streeterville. When Streeterville went out of business, the guy wanted the, the console, so we had to buy the entire studio. So he ended up with like 30 tape machines or something. So we went down there to pick it up. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of a funny story. Like when I, you know, we, I called him, we had scheduled time to come down and, and check it out. And we're like, cool, yeah, we'll take it, you know. And um, so I need a, you know, the way tape machines, you got, you have two flanges, right? Two reels. One's, you know, has this tape supply and the other one's a take up reel. So we were like, oh, well, we need an empty flange, you know, for a take-up reel. And he just had like, a pile. I mean, it was just like piles and piles of gear in this place that he just, he had to take in order to get the console. And uh, so there was just piles of tapes. And um, he was like, just go over there and grab one of those and spool it in the trash and, and take the flange. I'm like, all right. So I walked over and just grabbed the one on top and it was uh, simply irresistible. It was the multi-track, <laughs> the multi-track tape for that song. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can spool this in the trash. And he's like, just fucking do it, man. Do it. I'm like, all right. So I took the multi-track to that, that song and, and threw it in the trash and left with the, the reel. So, so anyway, that, that was how we, you know, volume started. And we, uh, just the three of us, you know, we put our resources together and, and opened that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Chicago, were there a number of sort of like, uh, because that sounds like a turnkey situation, basically. Like you're you're moving into a space that has uh, that's equipped already in right. some respect. Right. Um, were there other opportunities like that out there just to get like a sense of what the landscape was like at that time, as far as studios in Chicago? Yeah, it, there was. I mean, you know, like in the early two thousands, it was a weird kind of transitional period because most of the larger studios were just going belly up. You know, they just couldn't keep up with that the amount of overhead they have. So. A lot of those places are going out of business, so you were seeing smaller studios start to pop up, you know, and, and uh, there were a few, uh, I can't think of like too many that, um, of the smaller studios that uh, went out of business at that point, because I feel like that, a lot of the smaller studios actually kind of started filling that void that the, stu- the bigger studios did at the time, you know, because at one time you didn't have an option, you know, you had to go to a, a big studio and spend 1500 bucks a day to to cut a demo or or a song or whatever you know you didn't have the option of like a four or five hundred dollar day room you know that that was it that's really all you had or you, or you were doing it in somebody's house or basement or something you know so I felt like around that time and there was another studio called Semaphore and we were kind of like you know you either go to volume or you go to Semaphore you know what I mean <laughs> that was kind of like the two options and and we were friends with those guys and. When volume ended up closing, because the lady, uh, the the couple that owned the building, they ended up selling it, and uh, so we had to we lost our lease. Uh, I called Jeremy 
um, from Semaphore and was like, hey man, we just lost our spot. Uh, do you know of any rooms that are available? And he was like, well, I just had a meeting with my partners and we were about to close down. He's like, why don't you just take our spot? And so uh, they were they were literally like, you know, uh, weeks away from just locking the door and, and, and walking out. And uh, so I was like, dude, I got six months worth of sessions booked. So I just transferred my sessions over there and just started. I mean, they had pretty much the same console. They, you know, they already had a tape machine. They, they had a Pro Tools. We combined our Pro Tools rig. We combined our mics, our outboard. So we took like two pretty okay studios and made one like pretty badass studio, you know, and it was super seamless. Like it was like, yeah, instead of going to this space, you're now going to this space right down the street, you know. And, uh, and so I, I worked out of Semaphore for several years after that. And, we, and uh, those guys were still involved, the original guys. They, the, the deal was they were just all doing live sound. And so they were never there. You know what I mean? And they were like, why are we paying uh, this overhead every month for a studio that we don't use? So, um, so it actually worked out because they were able to keep their studio. And, and you know, if they weren't on tour, they had a place to work. And I had enough business to where I could, you know, make the, the monthly nut and all the bills got paid and, and the place stayed open. So it was, it was, it was cool. Like the way it worked out was just, uh, it was really nice. Was it something you, did you consider uh, going on the road and doing live sound or were you pretty firmly uh, interested in being in one place and the work coming to you? Yeah. I mean, I, I get the, uh, the lore for live sound and I, I get why people, um, I, I know a lot of guys that started out in the studio and, and, and then went, started doing live sound and I get it. I just, it's just something that's never really interested in me. Like if I want to go on tour, I, w- I want to be on stage playing, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd rather do that than be mixing a band, you know? Um, if I, if I'm mixing a band, I want to, I want to be in a controlled environment, you know, and we can take our time and. And it's not just, but I, you know, and I get it. Like they love the throw and go, just fucking, you know, the rush of it. And you, you know, you've got like one shot to get it right. I mean, that's cool, you know, and obviously traveling is badass, but I also don't want to be gone that long because I know a lot of dudes that, that tour all the time and they don't get to make music, you know what I mean? And, and to me, that's, that's my thing, making music and then producing music like under that. What makes me really happy is making music, you know, and, and I love producing music, obviously. Um, but you know, if I had my choice, if somebody was like, you know, here's a million dollars, you can make music or, or produce it. I'd, I'd make it for sure. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, um, deciding to own your own studio and working out of other ones versus having a space in your home, uh, what, what kind of gravitated you at that point in your life to having a space versus doing things out of your home? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I like, I like having my, my personal life and my work life as, as separate as possible. You know, I'm not a very public guy with my personal life and I like to keep it that way. So I did have like a mixing setup in my house for years, uh, up until last year actually. And, but I wanted to have a space where I could track if I wanted to, you know, if I needed to do a vocal overdub or a guitar overdub, I wouldn't have to go and try to find a studio. I could just have the artist come to me and, and we'd do it. But I didn't want them coming in my house. You know what I mean? I wanted to keep that separate. So uh, that's what it originally drove me. You know, and back then too, like you can't, 
you didn't have the options like you do now. You can't you can't have a you couldn't have a laptop with a portable rig. It just didn't work like that. You know, you had to have a desktop. There was no, you know, laptops couldn't run a you know anything back then. And and I was still doing a lot of uh, most of the mixing I was doing was still analog. Like even though I tracked the Pro Tools, it was just like a tape machine for me. I still mixed everything on a, on a desk. I still used outboard gear, and I I worked like that up until uh, maybe two thousand. 14, I still mixed everything on a console. So you, I couldn't have a setup like that in my house. But, you know, things change and you've, you've got to adapt, you know. Bands had just gotten, musicians started getting used to being able to mix everything in the box and just do an instant recall, you know. So if you, if they got the mix home, they're like, oh man, the fucking sounds great, but the hi-hat's too loud. And if they were to call me back then, Hey man, can you just turn the hi hat down? I'm like, no, dude, we'd have to literally mix the entire song, you know. So that ended up be starting to become an issue, you know, because artists are just had gotten more used to working in, a, in the box. So I knew that I was gonna have to make that step, and it was weird. Like I, I feel like I've just really started getting used to mixing in the box. It took me a long time. I hated it at first. But I, I've gotten used to it now, and I, I, I prefer it now, definitely, because now I'm the guy that takes it home and be like, oh, the hi-hat's too loud, and, you know, and I can just go back, pull the session up, turn the hi-hat down, print it, and, and be done with it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so back then, you, you, know, you had to have a space. You had to have a studio. You couldn't really do it in your house. I mean, people did, but it was really hard. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and I was just living in an apartment at the time. I, I didn't have a basement or anything that I could put it in. Mm -hmm. And all the equipment was out there, and it was... It sounds like with studios opening and closing, there was a lot of opportunity to to get a rig and do yeah. something like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, you tape machines went from you know like uh, thirty, forty grand to like two, three grand. You know what I mean? So, and now they're practically worthless, you know, for the <laughs> most part. Like I, uh, I hated selling my tape machine, but I'm like, I you know, I never use this thing, and I haven't tracked a tape in in years now. You know, so yeah. You know, yeah, you're right. You, I mean, it's you know, like some gear retains its value, but some of it doesn't, and you can get good deals if you're if you're paying attention. So, what does your uh, your setup today look like as far as uh, how you're mixing and then uh, engineering? I kind of do as far as mixing. I do kind of like a hybrid. It's mostly in the box, but I I do have some outboard stuff, uh, compression EQs that I use, but um. You know, but it's it's basic stuff, stuff that I can, stuff that usually doesn't change. I just leave it in the same settings all the time, and it just stays that way. So I don't even have to recall it. You know what I mean? The EQ is always set to the same settings. The compression, I might have to change the threshold, you know, from song to song a little bit, but everything else pretty much stays the same. Other than that, it's it's mostly all in the box now. And then. Going into 2020, I decided that I wanted to have a space outside of my house. You know, for like what I mentioned before, having the opportunity to record someone, but I also felt like my social life was starting to suffer, and uh, I wouldn't leave my house. Like, like I, I sometimes I wouldn't go outside for like a week. You know, maybe two weeks. Like I wouldn't even step foot outside. So I like this is you know becoming a problem, and um, so I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'll rent a space. That way I'll, I you know, have to get in my truck and drive there, ride my bike. And when I'm done, I'm already out, you know, I'm dressed, I'm like showered. So now, you know, if I want to go see a show, I'll just go see a show. 
the week that we opened, that we finished the build out on my studio was the week everything went into lockdown. <laughs> so <laughs> after all of that, I'm like, oh, fuck, cool. You know, I'm, and now instead of sitting in my basement by myself, I'll just sit in, in the studio by myself. But it was nice to actually like get, get in a vehicle and like drive somewhere, you know, and it was fucking rad because there were no cars anywhere. It was mm -hmm. awesome. Like if what would be like a 30 minute drive, I could do in like 10 minutes tops. It was rad. You're just driving around Chicago with no traffic. It was so crazy. It was rad. <laughs> so now, yeah, I have like a setup now. It's like a small control room, a small tracking room. I do all my mixing there. I can track vocals, guitar, bass, percussion, pretty much. I mean, I could put a drum kit in there if I wanted to. It, it would be tight, but it, it would fit. But that's not really what it's for. You know, I, I'll go to electrical or, or somewhere to track drums and basics. And then the idea is, then you know we come back to my my spot and we do all the overdubs and we mix it and and then it's done and as the overhead's low you know it's nice as I don't have to stress about it every month you know is it's it's been really really rad to have. So I was kind of uh, peeking at some photos and something stood out uh, photos of some of your equipment and a sticker that reads distort everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, came up, so uh, why is this important to you? What does that mean to you? Uh, well, it, first of all, the guy that wrote that or made that sticker, his name's Scott Evans. Um, he's in a band called uh, Kowloon Walled City. He's a producer and uh, based out of Oakland. Um, and he made those stickers and I just, I thought of, they were fucking amazing. Um, and he, sent out, he's, he, he just sends them out to like all of his producer friends or whatever. To me, like saturation is is where it's at, man. Like, um, I use saturation more than I do EQ, compression, any of that shit. I I saturate everything, like every and I and I, I to me, like I feel like that's that's a process that doesn't get used as well as it should, or not not as as. I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of people kind of overlook. They're all about like EQ and compression and stuff, which you know, obviously you need. But um, everything that I track, everything I mix, it it gets distorted somehow, some way. And usually, just by saturating a, a track, I don't really need to EQ and compress it. You know what I mean? It's it's done. That's all I need. And or if I do, it's just like minor moves. You know, I, I don't like. I'm not a uh, hard EQ guy. I don't do like crazy EQ moves. You know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of little moves. Same with compression. I don't, I don't like just squash the fuck out of shit unless I'm looking for that effect. You know, but I, I generally, if I want that effect, I'll drive it hard with some sort of saturation, and not reach for a compressor and, and try to do that. So yeah, I mean, to me, like that sticker kind of sums up my whole uh, my whole way of working, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, so when a band approaches you, what is it about them that strikes you initially? What, what do you look for in a band when they approach you and gets you enthused about working with them? Um, I get, I don't know. It's like everything's a little different. I mean, I, I love, you know, I just love music, you know, and, uh, I guess if, if it hits me in a way, if it does something that makes me feel something, if it either, if it makes me feel hatred or gross or, I get excited, you know, like that's, that's the kind of the thing that I'm, I'm looking for, you know, like when I, even just as a music fan, you know what I mean? If I'm, if I'm, you know, scrolling on uh, iTunes or whatever, and I come across something I like, 
it's because it it affected me somehow. You know what I mean? It made me feel something, and whether you know whether it was a good feeling or not, um, that's you know it, it gave me something. So yeah, I kind of like the same thing. You know, like I I like bands that that push boundaries that don't just you know take the template and just fucking insert it on on their stuff. You know, I like people that are always pushing and trying new things. And even unfortunately, a lot of those bands oftentimes get kind of thrown to the side until like 20 years later and then everybody's like oh my god that band was amazing it was like yeah no shit you know they influenced all these other bands you you've heard you know for the past 20 years but um you know so many i i I could go on and on and on how many times this happened you know to musicians but uh but yeah anything like i just you know i I love i love when artists just just push it and just you know just try to fucking dig it you know get in there so when you're hearing uh, a band, maybe they've shared some demos with you uh, just to set some expectations. How do you kind of negotiate managing expectations when they may have a specific idea of what they want to sound like, but you have you're bringing a different wealth of experience to the table, right? And what you hear in it may be totally different. How do you kind of negotiate uh, that type of tension? Well, I mean, the way I look at it is at the end of the day, it's not my record, you know, it's their record. So I, my ultimate, when I used to walk away or when I approach a band, you know, and we're either we're starting or we're done, my goal is to make that band the record that they want to make. You know what I mean? And there are a lot of times I don't agree and, and I'll butt heads, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's not my, it's not my, my, my art, you know what I mean? It's theirs. So but I'll, I'll obviously suggest, you know, I'll suggest arrangements, uh, sounds, even tunings, you know, but I don't push any of my, my opinions on anyone, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. if, if they, I'll suggest something, if they're cool, they're cool. If they're not, then, you know, I'll try to, to take their vision and, and make it a reality as, 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 as well, as well as I can. And if I can't, then, uh, I'll step away, you know what I mean, and and that's fine. Like I've uh, I've done that and before, you know, not not it hasn't happened a lot, but it has happened where we just could not come to an agreement, you know, and and they wanted something that I just didn't think I could give them, you know, whether not really a technical, but you know, I just it's just something that I just did not feel to me it, it would have done them injustice to try to bend my my way of doing things to make them happy you know then no neither one of us would have been happy at the end of the day mm-hmm. so i mean i i think that's important for a lot of engineers and producers that you know sometimes you just have to it just doesn't work out you know what i mean sometimes you got to just part ways mm-hmm. it happens and in addition to uh mixing and producing you've also performed on a number of uh records that you've uh worked with do you, is this a situation where a band approaches you and asks you to perform on a record, or is it something that you find enthusiastic about a project that you've approached them? And I mean, it's it's a little bit of both. You know, like if an artist approaches me, I mean, usually if I perform on somebody's album, it's like uh, it's more of like a sound design type of thing. You know, like they'll want me to add like uh, some sort of synth texture, and a lot of times they'll want me to play on it, but. At the end of the day, like uh, once everything's in, there's you know not much room for it. 
And, and it also happens organically, you know, like if I'm working with someone and I have an idea and they're, you know, they're into it, then I'll lay it down, you know? So yeah, it's, it kind of goes both ways. Like a lot of times they'll, they'll, uh, they'll reach out to me, you know, with the idea of, of me playing on it somehow. And then I've, I've played on records that I haven't even produced. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of both. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Samford Parker in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of heavy hops at the moment that I want to share. Live music is back. The first Scorched Tundra Presents show is taking place on Saturday, September 4th at the Empty Bottle in Chicago, featuring In the Company of Serpents, Hive, and Roman Ring. You can find tickets at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things heavy hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, Find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Sanford Parker. I want to look at a couple of releases that you've worked on over the years uh, in some depth. So we chose three or four that sound a little bit different, and that being an outsider, I imagined the processes were a little bit different. So I think this will be an interesting uh, conversation of, are you confirming or denying my biases before we even get into it? Um, but the first one is uh, Nakmistium, the black metal assassins, and then that being part one and addicts being part two. Uh, can you kind of walk us through uh, through those through those projects and uh, you know what, because you also were involved in them in a musical and an aspect, yeah, maybe from design. Can you kind of walk us through those? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I met Blake through uh, uh, Greg Anderson from Southern Lord because um, he had did the Twilight record, I believe, the first one. I think it was on Southern Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had met Blake and they kind of, be, you know, built this relationship. And I think um, Blake was running a label at the time. And I think Southern Lord was distributing it or something. Anyway, um, Greg was in town and he's like, oh, there's this, you know, guy I want you to meet. So he arranged it and we met and, and we like totally hit it off. Um, and, uh, you know, just had the same vision on and the same attitude toward things. And uh, he's like, yeah, you know, I've got, this band, Nocmistium, that, you know, we're looking for someone to record the new record with and would I be interested? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, it sounds great. So uh, <laughs> that process, um, that band was probably, that whole, everything about that band was one of the weirdest fucked up things I've ever been associated with. So yeah, I mean, it, it starting from day one, it was just a clusterfuck. I mean, I... We could go like hours and hours about how fucked up the, <laughs> this band was, but uh, it that's basically how it started. And then he he put the bands together, you know, the the musicians or whatever. And uh, like when we started Assassins, he showed up to the studio with I think two songs and like some riffs, and that was it. So we we basically you know we just liked. I mean, well, every record I've done with them has been like the second one too, same way. I don't. I think we probably had less material going in on the second one than we did the first one. But the process, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't regret it. I, I, and I actually kind of loved it. I loved the the chaos. Um, <laughs> so there was a lot of um, 
moving the process along and constructing things in addition yeah. to actually the mechanics of engineering. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of, um, okay, who's got something that we can work with, you know, and, and even like, uh, Tony, the drummer, he was just like, you know, hired to play drums. He's like, I, I've got a riff, you know, and we're like, cool. <laughs> was that, uh, was that Tony Loreno yeah. that played on that album? Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, it, that's and that's how it was, you know. It's like, well, who who else has a riff? And then like, I got a riff. So we literally just, you know, just threw this this thing together. And uh, and it, you know, it was there. Were, I don't know. I, I felt like there's something to be said for like th just throwing yourself into an in a situation and just like sink or swim. You know what I mean? You just, you just got to do it. You got to figure it out. You know. And uh, we long days, like 15, 16 hour days. Uh, you know, drugs and booze everywhere, people in and out of the studio constantly. Um, the whole environment was just, it was like, I, you, you couldn't really make a situation more chaotic than, than what was <laughs> happening in the, in those recording sessions. Like all, all, both of them, all, all of them, even the, uh, the last record I did with them, same fucking thing, you know? Um, I had a little more control over that. And, and by that point, Blake was like full on junkie mode. So he was just kind of off in the corner and, you know, we would kind of have him come in and sing a line here and there, and then we would push him back out, and he would just go sit in the corner. Because those two albums, uh, in a lot of ways, really were big aids in putting that band on the map, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Assassin's got, like, you know, a ton of killer press, and, a, and it was cool, yeah. It was, I, I, I mean, I haven't listened to that record in a long time, but... Um, I remember liking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was listening to it earlier, and then I was listening to the uh, the recording from Roadburn that I think was recorded on the back of that uh, of that release, and I think a lot of that set came from the Assassins. Yeah, and that was uh, it was pretty uh, pretty incredible that uh, something of that sort, and it speaks a lot to kind of your experience, and also just being thrown at something. Yeah, uh, to put something together that's uh, of that caliber. Well, I mean, I'll give Blake this, that, you know, he doesn't have a lot of talent um, as far as playing an instrument or writing a song, but his talent lies in getting a group of people uh, together to create something for him. You know what I mean? And that's, that's, <laughs> that's a special talent. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> it is. And, and absolutely is. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's essentially what happened. You know, he just, he's like, I, I want all you guys to play on my record. And then he threw us in a room and then he fucked off and we made a record. You know? <laughs> like pretty much every time, that's exactly how it went down. Uh, which is fine. You know, I, I loved all those guys. I loved working with those guys. It was fun as hell. And, um, but it, yeah, it was just funny. You know, it was like, at, at, uh, you know, when we started out, we're like, you know, hey, Blake, what do you think about this? But then uh, that quickly just went to like, who fucking cares what he thinks? And then we just started making the record, you know, and, we would just start recording parts without even, well, he wouldn't even hear it until it was done. Yeah. There were, and thinking about some of those personalities, uh, what other sorts of opportunities came out from that project because you were meeting a lot of people maybe for the first time or? Yeah, well, uh, Chris Black, um, that was when I got to you know work with him and really got to know him. And we created a, a long lasting friendship and, um, you know, I, we still work together all the time. He's an amazing guy. Uh, Jeff Whitehead, you know, working with him. I met him through Blake. And, uh, and then, you know, I ended up doing the two Twilight records with him. I did the Leviathan record. Uh, that was awesome. You know, I've got tattoos by him. So, uh, and I still talk to him, you know, on a regular basis. Uh, 
Jeff Wilson, you know, I met him through that band and we, you know, I'm doing a remix for him in a couple of weeks. So yeah, a lot of those guys, man, I still talk to, I still keep in contact with and um, like Zach from Goat Whore, I, you know, I met him doing the, uh, the uh, EP and um, I talked, you know, still friends with him, still talk to him on a regular basis. So yeah, it's just like, I, I feel like all the friendships that I made outside of Blake have been really good and really strong and I still talk to them. I haven't talked to Blake in years and I don't know, <laughs> you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, sandwiched between these two Knock Mystium albums, you uh, shifted your focus over to the Pacific Northwest and did the Yab album, yeah. uh, The Great Secession. Yeah. Um, what was that process like working with them? And, you know, they have a very distinct sound that's different from uh, Knock Mystium, yeah. obviously. What, how, how, how was that process? Well, I mean, that's like the opposite of, <laughs> of I mean, yeah, you couldn't like get really... <laughs> a different single personality, <laughs> right? <laughs> you couldn't get two more opposite <laughs> situations. I mean, with like Yob, I didn't do, I literally just had to point some mics and hit record, you know, and, and that was it. I had to do shit and it was awesome, you know? <laughs> like, I love both sides of things, you know? Like, but yeah, that, that, that record was great. We did that and... Uh, in a barn, like out in the middle of, I don't even know where the fuck we were, somewhere in Oregon. And uh, there's like goats and peacocks and shit all around. You know, it, was, it was fucking, you're like, you'd like finish a track and walk outside and there would be a goat just hanging out and you're like, hey, what's up? You know, it was cool. Um, so yeah, that was fun. I think we did like a week and a half out there. And then I came back um, to Chicago and, and mixed it um, on my own. You know, I'd send them tracks and they would send me notes and I'd make revisions. But were you uh, were you reamping and manipulating the distortion at all here, or did you, no, you capturing everything yeah, pretty no, organically my, there? Mike, has, Mike's a fucking tone wizard, man. I don't, I don't even fucking get in the way, you know. I'm, <laughs> I let him do his thing, and and I throw some mics on it. Um, yeah, he's he's the master of that shit, you know. I don't. If yeah. if, if, <laughs> if I would, I all I could do is fuck it up. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, it was awesome. Well, all the uh, all those guys are fucking great. I love like Travis is a, just a fucking a hammer. You know what I mean? Like such a hard hitting, just solid drummer. Like his meter is spot on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just such an easy band to work with. Like seriously, is is all I you know like literally all I could do is fuck it up. You know. And so you in that case you were kind of going to them and you were going to like an environment that sounds like it was pretty comfortable for them. Yeah. Is was there value in that process to going to them and going to a place where they were sort of comfortable yeah. in their element? They they had already tracked two or three albums in that same studio before with the guy that owns it. And uh and he was there, you know, helping out and um, trying to not fuck it up himself too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we were both just trying not to fuck it up. <laughs> and uh uh so yeah, they they were totally comfortable with it. Absolutely 100%. You know, they 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 knew that space in and out. They knew him, you know, they're like old buddies. It was awesome because he just had a litter of puppies too. So there was fucking puppies out there. It's like, it like the most non-metal thing, but it was awesome. I mean, it is, yeah, but <laughs> there's always like a metal, non-metal yeah, sort yeah, of tension. Totally. <laughs> now to cut you off, I will say something about Mike yeah. that um, fucking just totally blew me away was, uh, you know, so I, I stayed with him, right? And I, you know, stayed at his house and every morning, we would wake up, make coffee. We would hang out in his kitchen, drinking coffee, uh, having some breakfast. And his mailman 
would show up same time every day, show up with a package. And Mike would be like so fucking stoked. And he would open the package and it was like some fucking cassette demo of like some band from some country I've never even heard of, you know? And he's like, fuck yeah, the, the blah, blah, blah album's here. And so on the way to the studio, he'd put it in the, in the van and just fucking crank it all the way there. And he's, and it, you know, he's like so into, into music. It's insane, like next level. And he'd, we'd blast it on the way over and he was so fucking excited. Next morning, same thing, sip of coffee, mailman shows up. Another package, another cassette from some band, some some country I've never heard of. He'd be fucking stoked. Put in the. I mean, this happened every day. <laughs> so finally, I was like, I was like, dude, man, um, I think this is awesome that you're really into this shit. But my ears are fucking fried. And uh, can we not <laughs> play metal at ten in the morning? You know, blasting on the way to the studio. And he was like, yeah, yeah, totally, man, totally. So uh, he was like, do you like comedy? And I'm like, yeah. So then after that, it was just stand-up comedy that we would listen to. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say the mailman next yeah. day and then it's comedy. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But yeah, it was insane, man. Like, uh, I've never, like, you know, he's, he's just like, he's such a, just an amazing person. Like, there's so many levels to that guy. It's, it's, it's insane. You can spend like an entire day with him and not even get like halfway through it. You know what I mean? Like, he's such a fucking cool dude. Was that a learning experience in that case for you working with someone who is sort of an anthology of tone and also is very open to new things and is constantly like ingratiating themselves oh, in new yeah. music? Totally, man. Absolutely. And and uh and just like just the the level of like work involved finding these bands and ordering, you know what I mean? And I mean, I get it like, and you know, there's internet and stuff, but I mean, this was over 10 years ago. So it definitely, it wasn't how it is now. And you actually had to put some work into finding these bands, you know, and, uh, and he did it and he was so fucking excited to, to get those tapes, you know, it was rad. That's incredible. Like story in that someone, is continuously excited about new things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people go a number of different ways. Some get jaded and fall into totally. a pattern. Yeah. But uh, this sounds like a pretty different situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's like, yeah, he's a rare breed. You don't run into people like that very often. And, I, and unfortunately, I kind of fall into that other category where, I mean, it's not that I'm jaded. I just, I just don't have, you know, I, I listen to music for a living. So when I'm not doing my job, I want complete fucking silence, you know, which kind of sucks because I don't get to really hear a lot of new music out there, you know. Like I usually only end up hearing what I what I work on, and I, I try to get better at that. I try to consciously, but you know, it's just like when I have a day off, it's like I don't even want to hear like I don't even want to hear like traffic, you know what I mean? Like I don't want to hear anything. I just want like complete fucking silence. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's 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 you know it. What I do is is you know it definitely has its downside as far as that goes, but that's what it is. One of my favorite albums from 2019 was actually Dark Throne's Old Star album. Oh yeah, that you cool. that you mixed, and this is a band that whose sound and like a lot of things about their music has sort of taken an evolutionary track. Unlike a lot of, I mean, I mean, I guess a lot of the black metal bands from that world have also changed over time. But I think that 
it's most visible with them, perhaps, yeah. uh, apart from maybe like uh, Emperor. With that sort of backdrop, the clarity of that mix was something that was a little bit different from even if you were to look at uh, an evolution of the previous albums and then their album that dropped uh, earlier this year, too. Right. So what kind of conversations were occurring around that release? And then how did you kind of arrive at such a clear mix? So the guy that, um, this guy Jack, uh, he mastered it and kind of worked as like the producer on that project more or less. And he had worked on a couple of their uh, previous albums with them. So they were already, you know, pretty comfortable with, with, his, with him working with him and they trusted him. So he hit me up, you know, he's like, hey, how would you feel about mixing it? And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, man, definitely, <laughs> you know. It was funny because uh, he's like, they're going <laughs> to... He's like, they're going to send the tracks in, uh, you know, January of that year or whatever. And he's like, uh, I'll, I'll let you know when I get them. I should get them in a, in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, what do you mean? How are they sending them? And he's like, oh, they're sending a DVD of the tracks. <laughs> I'm like, that is so fucking amazing. And uh, so he like, they mailed a DVD of the audio tracks to him. And then he uploaded it in the city. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Making sure nothing gets uh, leaked, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it was amazing. Um, and uh, Good thing it didn't get lost. Yeah, no shit. Or Mike that, didn't that get could, it in that, the mail. I mean, that could have been the only... DVD in yeah. the there, right? <laughs> that could have been the only copy, too, for all I know. I don't know, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, that was uh, that was interesting. Um you know, because I, I had very little interaction with them going in, you know, and uh, it was funny because, like, he, he told me, he's like, they're, they've been really into trouble lately, um, the band. And I'm like, and they're, he's like, they really love the Rick Rubin era stuff. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I kind of referenced that at, at the beginning, you know, for kind of balancing and some levels and stuff. And then I sent it to them, and uh, they're... Uh, their first, their note was uh, less, or no, it was uh, less 87, more 78. That was it. It was like one, it was like one line. <laughs> and I'm like, but I totally got it. You know what I mean? I totally understood what they were saying. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, so I did another, uh, some revisions and did another pass and sent it back to them. And it was, again, one of the line, less Transformers, more Harry Crumb. <laughs> <laughs> you found your nerdy match there. Yeah. So, but, and, but again, I knew exactly what they, what they were referring to, you know? So I did another uh, round of revisions, another, print another version, sent it out, and they're like, yep, that's it, cool. So that, that was my interaction with the band. Was, I love that. Yeah, that's incredible. That's I, I almost want to imagine these notes coming in a big manila folder yeah. to your door and you just open it up. <laughs> written in blood. Written There's in like blood. weird like ashes in there. Yeah. <laughs> is that what, you know, is that what you kind of, obviously you were sort of prepared for that project because you were, a, you know, sort of approached by the project manager yeah, of it. Right. Is that uh, when you were younger and thinking about working or imagining working with bands like that from that era that do things in a certain way, how do those sort of expectations and then what actually happened match or not uh, match? Well, I mean, yeah, I, out of, out of that era, like uh, black metal to me, they're, you know, that they're the fucking top tier, man. Like mm -hmm. there's nobody better than them. Right. So yeah, to have an opportunity to work with them, I was just 
fucking freaking out, you know? And, uh, and it, was inter- it was funny too, because it happened, um, there was that vol- uh, polar vortex that happened that, that year, mm-hmm. which and it happened that week that I was mixing that record. And so it got so cold that they were like, do not leave your house. And I still had my setup in my basement at the time. And I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't gonna leave my house anyway, but now I, I can't, you know. So uh, I just stayed in my basement that week and just mixed that record during a fucking polar vortex. How was, appropriate. Yeah, That's it was good. great. Yeah, I was like, I can't think of a better way to spend this week, you know, than, <laughs> than working on this record. And it was just so weird, man. It was just like the whole time I was just like, is this really happening? You know, I'm like, am I, am I really working on this record? And then the, the interaction with them was like so minimal and their notes were so minimal. And then it was done. And then I was just like, did that just fucking happen? Like, <laughs> is that for real? And then, and then the, you know, the record came out and people fucking, I had people that I haven't talked to in 20 years hit me up. You're like, dude, that fucking record sounds sick. I'm like, cool. You never commented on any other record I've done in my entire life. But that was awesome. You know, like I've, I got more compliments for that record than I think I have any other album that I've worked on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a massive notch, like yeah, just yeah. to be able to feed up even just like an American producer to be able to work with a band yeah. uh, from that era. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then, but the process was like just so, you know, <laughs> so like, minimal. Yeah. It was so <laughs> minimal and just like, uh, yeah, you know, I, I wish I had a cooler story to tell, but that's kind of it. But I think that matches in a way of when you think of like minimalism and you think that it's sort of approach that music from the 90s was being approached from a minimalistic perspective right. as far as its correlation to the punk world and then, you know, the minimalism with the production. Yeah. And so to me, it makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. they're using as few words to, as possible yeah. to communicate so much. Right. And yeah. it's one of those, either you really fucking get it Are or you, you're in the woods exactly. on what that <laughs> totally, means. Man. And, I, and that's the thing is I have, you know, I, I get the, the other end of the spectrum where I'll get like six pages of notes sometimes. And I'm more confused by that than I was their one <laughs> sentence fucking <laughs> email. You know what I mean? And, uh, and you're right, dude. I, I think this, their, the simplicity of that band is what makes them so fucking. I mean, I, they, it was like eight tracks. It was like eight tracks total that mm-hmm. they sent me, um, and and they were all like in one. I'm pretty sure they recorded most of that stuff, like the entire album, in one take. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Like it was just yeah. There was like uh, I think six tracks of drums, two guitar, and a bass, and, and a vocal. And mm-hmm. that was it. There was like nothing to it. Yeah, it's it's sparse, but it's huge. Yeah, right. It's a fucking bombastic album yeah. when you kind of listen to it in relation to their catalog, just because of how expansive the sound is on it. It's incredible right. that that was captured in so few yeah. instrument tracks. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And so you know, and then when we flash forward to this year, you've worked with I Hate God, and you know that was a fantastic release this year. But Facts as well put out yeah. an album. Varying sound drastically. <laughs> um, so, how does your process change uh, when you're doing these two kinds of different bands with different instrumentation and sounds? Uh, you know, I put facts in the category as job. Like, you know, I, I just got to stay out of the way. Like, all I'm going to do is fuck it up if I start getting too involved. Yeah. So, it's just throw some mics up. I mean, that dude, that band is so fucking dialed in. You know, mm-hmm. Noah's my favorite drummer, hands down, like out there. And so 
literally, I, if I just point a mic in his general direction, it's going to sound good, you know? <laughs> and that's, that's, that's really it, you know? Like we, I think we did that entire record in three days, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that's, you know, so easy just to chill. I, I, I do love when those sessions do come around and it's almost like a day off for me, you know what I mean? <laughs> Where I can just, just take my time and get everybody set up and going and then I just kind of sit back and listen to them fucking rock out, you know, and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And uh, the mic thing was interesting because um, I saw somebody, he posted something about having some music recorded or whatever, and somebody tagged me and, his, and he said, oh, I, I remember what it was. He said that the music's been recorded for like two years. He just needs to get it in a studio and do the vocals. And this was like during the lockdown, they had like a, a bunch of touring schedule that all canceled. And um, somebody just caught... Uh, tagged me in the comment and was like, dude, get fucking record his vocals or something. And I'm like, so I sent like a text. I'm like, yo, what's up? What's the deal? And he's like, I need to track vocals for this record. I'm like, okay, uh, is there a studio? And, and, and he's in Boston now. I was like, is there a studio we can go to around there? And he was like, yeah, there's a couple, but you know, I don't have a lot of options and I'm kind of freaked out, you know, with, the whole pandemic thing, I'm like totally understood, obviously, because he's got, you know, had a fucking liver transplant. So um, he's got to be careful with that stuff. And uh, I'm like, if you can get to Chicago, I have a studio. We'll fucking do it here. So he went online and and flights were so fucking cheap. He got a round trip ticket for $40. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, he found an Airbnb, like uh, just a couple blocks from the studio, you know, and, and they were on the end, the listing and they're like, this place is spotless. You know, we've sanitized everything. So, you know, we're not fucking around with that shit. So he flew in. So yeah, we would just go to the Airbnb and, and my studio and then back and that's it. And that's the only, the only places that he went. And uh, yeah, we spent a week uh, doing all the vocals for that. It was awesome. It was rad to fucking hang out with him. But it was cool too, cause he didn't really have a lot he didn't really have a lot of arrangements or even like a lot of lyrics put together because he just hadn't, they had been touring so much, he just hadn't had time to like sit down and really, you know, focus on that stuff. So that was awesome because I actually, uh, I was involved pretty heavily in the arrangement and helping him uh, uh, like what lyrics he, because, you know, he's got just stacks and stacks of notebooks and, and just shit that, you know, just stuff that he's written. And so we would sit through all of his lyrics and we would pull out lines here and there and we would take, you know, sections of one thing and, and combine it with the other. And then I would like sit down with them. And as far as the arrangement, we would listen to the song and I'm like, you know, oh man, I, this line would fit perfect right here, you know? And, and so he would do it and then we'd get to the next part. I'm like, you should try this. And so that was cool, man. I was like super involved in the, uh, the, the lyrics on that one. And it was, it was a lot of fun, it was mm -hmm. rad. Was that your first time kind of doing that puzzle work and piecing together lyrics? Well, or? no, like, so, you know, we did two Corrections House records and I think that's why it worked so well because that's how we did Corrections House. So mm. Both those albums mm. were me and him and, you know, Bruce sitting down with his, you know, stacks of notebooks and being like, do this line and, and you put these two lines together and that'll fit in this section. And, you know, we had already had like a working relationship. We'd already done two albums together. So it was just like a natural thing. Like we, I think, I think we just both felt so comfortable and, uh, and it was cool because he felt safe. You know, he felt, he didn't feel like there was, you know, he was going to get sick or any of that shit. And um, it was like 
really it just worked out great. And if it hadn't been for, I don't know who the fuck tagged me. If it hadn't been for that person, you know, it may not have worked out like that. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, weird. How do you, because uh, working with someone like uh, Mike Williams, you mentioned that you kind of had a history of working with him in the Corrections House projects. How do you, like, what role does trust sort of play in what you do with musicians? Uh, it's huge. I mean, that's, that's all of it. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to get the performance that you want unless you get the trust first. You know, like, the artist has to, to know that you, you have their best interest, you know. And uh, anything that I suggest or say is always from the heart. You know, it's like, I'm, you know, I would never suggest something that I didn't feel like help the song in certain ways, you know, or whatever. And, and sometimes, it, you know, they, it, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes we'll try it and, and it doesn't work or whatever, but you know, that's, you don't know until you, until you try it. But I think like, uh, especially in his situation, you know, just having somebody that he, he trusts with like knowing his, his style and, uh, and just knowing the band and the, you know, background and working with him that immediately you don't have that, that guard up, you know what I mean? You can like literally just like be yourself and just, and I think that's when people come up with the best work, you know, when like, um, anytime I work with a new artist, uh, sometimes there's that, that force field that you got to break through before you really get anything usable out of them, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes that, that could take a day or two, you know, but, um, but once, once you've broken through, then that's when you start getting the good shit because you know they're if they're stiff if they're not relaxed if they're constantly like does this fucking guy know what he's doing if, if that's in the back of their head they're not gonna fucking perform right you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, broadening out the conversation a little bit, um, obviously there's been a proliferation of home recording, home studios, people uh, you know being able to produce stuff without having a formal studio. I mean, you, you do this yourself as well. Where does this put the modern engineer producer and record and uh, studio? Um, I mean, it's, you know, for one, I feel like home recording is amazing for demoing. Like bands have no excuse not to demo material before going into the studio. They, they have no zero fucking excuses. Everybody's got a computer you, garage band is free, I think. It's, it's cheap if it's not. So there's zero excuses not to demo your material and you know demo it a few times and fucking demo it, just demo the shit out of it, you know what I mean? And that alone, I've noticed that, that that's been a game changer, you know what I mean? Like having uh, artists show up prepared is, is awesome. And it's, just, it's changed the way, it's changed the entire uh, attitude toward going into the studio now. Like people are more confident. I don't really see drugs anymore. It's, it's weird. And I don't know what that has to do with recording, you know, home recording, but I just people don't come to the studio ready to party anymore. They're they come to work, you know, and, and that's fucking rad. And and yeah, and then they're just they're they're prepared, they're ready to go. So I think like home recording has like been a huge plus as far as that goes. I haven't really, you know, like I, I think most musicians know that you need somebody that knows what the fuck they're doing and you need a room that sounds good. You know, obviously that's people do have budgets and that's not always the case, you know, but I still feel like the majority of artists know the importance of having a good engineer, having a good producer and having a good studio, you know, and even though like you can obviously cheat a lot of that stuff now, there's just nothing 
nothing that takes the place of having a drummer in a sick fucking room with all these mics and he just feels fucking, you know, he's not cramped in a fucking little basement, you know, he's in this room, he hits a drum and it sounds like fucking thunder, you know, and they're like, fuck yeah, you know, like they get stoked, you know, they're like, their confidence is boosted, they're, they're gonna play better, you know, and, but I do, I do have a lot of, uh, I've been working with a lot of artists that will track like a DI guitar and DI bass and then bring it to me and then we'll reamp it. And that, that's, that's pretty cool too, because I feel like in certain ways, like a lot of times when you're setting up a band in a studio, a live band, you dial in the tones for like the first song and then you, that's just kind of your tones for the record, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, with reamping, that gives you the opportunity to dial it in for that song, print it, and then pull up the next song and then dial it in for that song, print it, pull up the next song. So you can really like get in there and kind of tweak it song by song. And, and uh, I think that's pretty rad. I mean, I've, I've done reamping sessions where I set up like an entire band, like two guitars and a bass and just have them just loop a part of the song and just have them all three going. And you can just stand there and like move around the room and like dial, you know, like hear the both amps playing at the same time along with a bass. So you can, really dial that shit in to where everything's like working together, you know, and, and they're all fucking, they're all buddies, you know? Um, so yeah, that, I, that aspect of it, I, I think is, is pretty neat. It's fun. I mean, it's still cool to have a band in a room fucking playing, you know, you can't, you can't like replicate that, but if you can't do that, at least like take your shit to a studio and, and reamp it, you know? Cause I mean, these, these amp simulators sound great, but you know, Playing through a speaker, the speaker's fucking distorting is hitting the amp or the microphone, you know, depending on what mic you choose, they all are going to affect the sound in certain ways. You hit a preamp, you hit an EQ, you hit a compressor, all that stuff, you know, it's all part of the chain, you know, it's not just the amp. It's like everything in the, in the signal path is going to affect the end result. Mm-hmm. So you can't really, there's really no way to replicate that. I mean, you can't do an IR for every microphone ever made and every EQ and you know, every EQ setting and all that shit. It's just, it's not really doable. Yeah. And so, um, when we're looking at one of the first records you did, uh, buried at seas migration, we're talking about a record that in the doom and sludge genre, as it has expanded beyond its origins, it's just aged. Perfect. Right? <laughs> well, <thank> um, you. <laughs> so, you know, in your opinion, do you think that is a sound that you um, made for that record? And do you feel it has aged well uh, as, you know, many people who view that record as doing so? I mean, you know, I could nitpick that thing apart all day long. And <laughs> obviously, I, I hear it differently than the way everybody else does. And I appreciate that. And a lot, of, and I get told that quite often. And um, I think that's awesome. But when we made that thing, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Like we were just turning and tweaking shit until it sounded like something that we liked. You know, we didn't we didn't make that. We're like, oh man, we're gonna make this crazy heavy ass record, you know, and we just like, let's just, you know, start a band, make a record, you know, and that was kinda it. Like, but the that goes back to like the electronic stuff in my life, you know, like it's gonna make its way in somehow, some way. And uh and so we were like sampling like uh, I got like a documentary and it was like these exploding volcanoes or whatever. And I sampled that and 
So a lot of people, that first riff of the first song, a lot of people think that they're like, dude, what, what guitar pedal is that? I'm like, it's a <laughs> fucking volcano. <laughs> it's just a straight up volcano sample. And, you know, we put like, uh, <laughs> we always reference um, pick slides as screaming eagles. And uh, so there's like a, a pick slide in the record. I'm like, we should put a, a fucking eagle. <laughs> so, you know, we were just, we were just goofing off really, man. Just kind of having fun. You know, there was like pig sounds in there and, uh, all sorts of shit. I can't remember now, but there, we there there was like there was as many samples happening um, as there were actual like instrument tracks. You know? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that sort of puts that album ahead of its time chronologically when you're looking at what the stoner doom. I wouldn't say stoner as much as doom sludge, whatever the fuck we want to call it. It is those that like soundscaping that really sort of distinguishes that do you see uh the sort of these like heavier slower genres of music finally sort of picking up that helm a little bit that this album and bands like sun sort of uh sort of started yeah uh i guess maybe i mean honestly i've been kind of out of the loop uh, as far as that stuff goes i'm not too familiar with a lot of like modern day like kind of doomier bands We'll get Mike in here, and he can. Uh, yeah, yeah. He call, can, call he can give Mike us a cassette, cassette every day, right? <laughs> yeah, the fucking metal encyclopedia. I call him. Yeah, so I, I can't really say, and and, you know, and and honestly, like that's just never. I've never been interested in what other, as far as songwriting, what other people are doing, and I, and I, I try honestly, like purposely try not to listen to too many things that that will influence me directly, you know, because I, I, I don't want that that outside element in there, so I. Potentially not listening to certain uh, bands or, or styles of music because I don't want that outside influence working its way in. Uh, why is that a concern for you? Uh, just because I like to just do things my way, and if and even if it's wrong or you know if, even if it sounds like shit, that's still how how I want to do it. And I don't want like any you know I just I was just you know I'm I'm, I'm just paranoid about accidentally like something weaseling its way into my brain that I hear from an album and and then I, I'm finding myself trying to replicate it, you know. This is this is interesting though, because you are working with a lot of music all the time. Right. So uh, is it more of a thing where if you can voluntarily close off that valve you want to? Well, uh, when I'm working on a record, it's it's a little different because I'm not I'm not just focusing on the riffs, but I'm I'm focusing on the sounds too. And and uh, as far as like sound design, I'll I absorb that shit all day long. You know what I mean. And and when I'm working like when I'm working on a record, that's really what I'm focusing in on. You know. And a lot of times, I don't even hear the album until I get it back from mastering. And then I'm like, oh, that's what this band sounds like. You know what I mean? Like because I'm just so hyper focused on uh, you know each individual element on its own. And just you know, putting that together to create something that a lot of times, uh, you know, I, I don't really hear. Like I gotta, you know, I when I step back and hear it as a whole for the first time is when uh, when I get the mastering back. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, yeah, I, as far as like sound design and shit, I'm always like, uh, dude, like when a guy comes, somebody comes in with a pedal, I'm like geeking out on it, and then next time they come in, I already bought one, you know, and. Yeah, as far as like sound design shit, totally, and and that's and that's a cool thing for, you know, for doing what I do is I get to try all this fucking gear all the time because I'm constantly working in other studios, constantly working with uh, all different types of musicians that play all 
different types of gear. So I get to hear all this stuff, you know, and get to fuck with it. And, and, uh, and then, yeah, if I'm like, oh man, that pedal would be cool on something that I'm working on, then I'll, I'll go and buy one. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at what's going on today, you uh, presumably are very busy because bands uh, have been stockpiling material. Yeah. Uh, what are some projects that you're working on musical? And I'm also curious about some of the sound, uh, like scoring that, you, that you're doing, but let's start with the sort of musical projects that maybe your own or maybe albums that are in production now. Yeah, so, well, unfortunately, I've, uh, I've been so busy. I mean, not unfortunately, but... The fact that I've been so busy, I really haven't had time to work on my own stuff, which I, I mean, I kind of have. Like, I've, I always have, like, I don't know, 30 songs that are ideas that I have that are in the works. But I, but, it, and, and again, I like having like a, uh, a catalog of, of stuff, you know what I mean? And sometimes I'll, uh, an artist will hit me up and want to do a collaboration. I'm like, oh yeah, I've got this track. You know, I, uh, for example, um, uh, Shane from Napalm Death hit me up the other day and, and uh, he was like, you know, we should start this fucking brutal, like early swans fucking thing. And I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. And, uh, and then he emailed me, he was like, do you think Thurston would want to get involved? And, and it was fun. I actually did a record in London during the pandemic, which is kind of insane. And Thurston lives in London now. So I actually, I met up with him and I was like, do you want to do a like a heavy fucking crazy band with Shane from Napalm. He's like, fuck yeah. So that's something that's kind of brewing in the background. Like we haven't really gotten very far into it, but when we do, that's going to be fucking sick. We'll probably be the heaviest thing ever. But <laughs> Sounds uh, <laughs> like it. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as like uh, other albums, um, Planes Mistaken for Stars, uh, we pretty much have all their shit. They, so the, they... Neil, the bass player, went to uh, Garrett's house in Peoria um, right, at, right before the pandemic. So he went there in February, right? And he was going to stay for a month, and they were going to work on, you know, maybe five or six songs. Pandemic hit. Neil lost his job. So he's like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to stay here. So they, they stayed there, and they ended up writing like 100-something songs. Yeah, it was nuts. So... We then, because we had this idea like in the fall to record a new Planes album. So then we had to go through all these songs and try to cut it down to 20. So we did 20 songs and then, you know, 10 or 12 will go on the record and then they'll have shit for an EP or seven inches or whatever. So we ended up doing uh, 20 songs with that. And that was kind of a fucked up situation because we had, we had the studio time booked to do the drums and like two weeks before, uh, Gary got diagnosed with cancer and he had to start treatment and, and it was for his throat. So he, w- he wasn't going to be able to sing. So we had to actually, and they, they had been, him and Neil had been demoing the tracks in Garrett's house. So he, uh, we basically had to take the demo tracks and he had to sing to those. So we, we recorded the vocals first, which was, you know, you, you never do that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Vocals are usually the very last thing to mm-hmm. happen. So we actually had to do it first, which is kind of weird, but it, worked, it totally worked out. So, and, and now we've gone back and like, we added the drums and the bass and pretty much all the guitars done. It's, it's mostly track now for all 20 songs. So I just have to mix it, which I'm probably going to start uh, in like a week or two. What else I got going on? I can never think, like when somebody asks, <laughs> I can, I, You've I've been- got like 30, I, I literally have like, like 10 records that I'm in the process of either recording or Yakuza. That's mm-hmm. one, yeah. 
Um, we have to do the guitar for that. Everything else is done. Matt's coming in next week to lay down the guitar for that that album, and then we just have to mix it. Mm-hmm. And you've been uh, you have a background in film as well, and write and scoring for films. Uh, is that something you're working on these days too? Yeah. So I've got a couple films that I'm working on. One is uh, kind of like a horror thriller, and the other one's kind of like a horror sci-fi. And uh, I'm doing all the composing for both of those. And um, so yeah, on top of the numerous albums I'm doing, I'm, I'm also doing those two things. And 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 they're they're both have been really fun. And and uh, the directors are awesome on on each one. I can't really talk a lot about them, you know, right now. But uh, but hopefully um, we'll start. You know, getting everything wrapped up soon, and I can actually start to post some information on it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that'll be cool. I think it'll be, it'll, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I guess like that's been my creative outlet, you know, because they're kind of just like, you know, this is the idea we have. This is like the temp tracks, and then I kind of take their temp tracks and and their notes and try to create something that that I, I think they'll they'll dig, you know. And uh, so yeah, that's been exciting. Awesome. Sanford, you're always busy. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.